Well, standing before you and bringing the Word of God is a sobering responsibility and a tremendous privilege. The opportunity to preach at TCC was one of the things that coming here or that, uh, that made coming here very attractive. You see, when you serve as an associate pastor, as I do, you do so under the oversight of the senior pastor. And not many senior pastors willingly share the pulpit the way Pastor Ken does with me. In many churches, the associate pastor will only preach when the senior pastor is on vacation or on a conference, and even then there is no guarantee. Here I'm able to preach at least a third of the time. Uh, to help you understand this, it's, it's a little like dad giving you the keys to the Ferrari. Not just once in a while, like on your grad night or something, but on a regular basis. And so this is kind of nice. About a week and a half ago at our weekly staff meeting, we were receiving or we were um, reviewing some upcoming dates, and I knew that I was scheduled to speak today. I asked Pastor Ken where in First Peter he would be ending up so I would know where to pick up in this hope series that we've been in. And incidentally, when we are doing a series as we are and I speak, I get to jump right in as well. So not only does Pastor Ken share the pulpit, but he also shares these series with me. Again, that may not be a big deal to you, but I know that in many churches it's not like that at all. You're kind of on your own if you're the associate pastor. Anyway, he told me that he was going to be finishing up at the end of chapter 2. Now, I don't feel like I know my, you know, every chapter and verse of the Bible very well, but certain chapters stick out, and they're a little easier to remember. And so when he said the end of chapter 2... I immediately knew what I was facing in chapter 3. First, I thought he was maybe just messing with me and pulling a cruel joke. But uh, the look of horror on my face when I realized that, in fact, he was telling the truth caused Jenny and Mel to wonder what chapter 3 could be about. And so I pulled out my Bible and started reading the verses that Randy just read for us. Uh, They offered their condolences and prayers. A thoughtful bunch they are. And Pastor Ken's wonderful advice to me? Just keep it between the ditches. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. You know, that's like giving me the keys to the Ferrari and then warning me not to make a wreck of it. No pressure, no pressure at all. You know, there's no question that these verses can be controversial. There are a number of hot buttons, most notably the S word, submissive. It felt like when Randy was reading that and it started out, it just almost like you could feel the collective gasp of of everyone. There's the reference to the weaker partner, the example of Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. Now, after uh, recovering from the staff meeting, the next morning I met with my triad, two other men, which incidentally I would highly recommend to both men and women. It's something that we encourage at TCC. There's an information sheet about them on the uh, information table. Seems like an obvious place for an information sheet. But anyway, I I shared these verses with the guys. One of the guys immediately sent a text to his wife that just said, just call me master. (laughs) She later said that she would meet with the other two wives, and if they all agreed to call their husbands master, well, then she would too. Smart woman, because she knew that wasn't going to happen. These verses <clears throat> can cause some men, some women 
to uh, hyperventilate, maybe some men as well. And unfortunately, sometimes men might sit with a smug, you-tell-them kind of grin. And both of these responses would be wrong. In fact, I may actually be harder on the guys this morning. I figured I'm one of them. I need to be reminded of these truths myself. And in some ways, preparing this week for this message was a wake-up call for me. And just a caution up front. Great abuses have happened as a result of misunderstanding and misapplying these verses. And so let's be very, very careful. But marriage is made in heaven. God designed marriage. Marriage brings great joy. And as many know, it can also bring great pain. And so I'm not wishing to make light of any of that. I hope that we can seek to understand and learn about what the Bible says about marriage this morning. Marriage is his plan, and he is a God of order. And a marriage made in heaven is built on the twin and parallel principles of mutual love and respect, which is demonstrated first, I believe, by a loving, kind, generous, understanding husband, and a wife who responds in submission to her husband. But it is this mutual love and respect that is of ultimate importance. In fact, when marriages face challenges, it can almost be tr- always be traced back to missing this point. Mutual love and respect ultimately leads to order and peace and healthy marriages. There will be more on this later, but for now, let's take a little closer look at the context that these verses are in, because that's important. Let me just set the stage. In both verse 1, in speaking to wives, and then in verse 7, in speaking to husbands, Peter uses the phrase, in the same way. Now, this makes an obvious reference to what he has already said. And back in chapter 2, in verse 13, he wrote, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And Pastor Ken explored this command with us last week. Here are these people who are going through times of being betrayed and ripped off, and Peter has the nerve to say to them, submit. Submit is not an easy word to accept. It's not very popular or politically correct. It probably never has been. And I'm sure these early Christians objected, because it means to arrange oneself under the authority of another, to subordinate myself to someone else. And so Peter says to people he loves very much, I know this is a horrible situation and it really stinks, but don't fight against it. Submit. Submit to the king or to his delegated authority. And then he also speaks to slaves. He says, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. And then he moves on into chapter 3 and addresses a third and fourth group, first wives, then husbands, and then next week a fifth and final group, all of you. But all of these instructions and applications of the principle of submission are generally a practical, or really, excuse me, a a practical application of verses 11 and 12 from chapter 2. There he wrote, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And so here Peter lays out the principle of denying sin and living a holy life. And so practically he says that means that followers of Jesus should submit to every authority for God's sake and for his glory. 
And so with that as the context, let's look a little closer to the verses here in chapter 3. Let me just say this, don't get fooled. Just because in this one passage we have six verses addressed to the women and only one to men doesn't mean that we'll spend six times as much time today speaking to the women. But let's begin there, to the wives. Peter begins with this command to be submissive to your husband. Now, he doesn't dwell there very long, kind of how I just want to move along myself. But he immediately moves to the purpose behind the principle. So that, he says, husbands who don't believe may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Peter says that you have to see the bigger picture. It's not just about submission but about living a holy life before unbelievers with the hope that this kind of behavior will have a positive impact on them. Peter wants wives to submit because of the influence their behavior has. That without using words, they might introduce their husbands to Jesus simply by the conduct of their lives. It really is, as one writer put it, an eloquent silence. Wives are to preach wordless sermons. And this purpose is further developed in verses 3 and 4. Because not only will actions speak louder than words, but so will the wives' character. Every culture and every era has its opinion about beauty. Then and now the emphasis is often on the externals, right? The latest hairstyle, gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Today we are overly preoccupied with looks. Tall, thin, shapely and wearing the latest fashions, all of which change over time. Peter's not saying that there's anything wrong with these things. What is of concern to him, however, is the value that we place on them because external appearance is secondary to the inner self. The focus is not to dress to attract attention, but to develop character that is attractive. And that kind of beauty, he says, is unfading. Think about this with me for a moment. A young married couple is three years into their marriage. The wife, through the uh, witness and influence of of a Christian co-worker, is introduced to Jesus, and she crosses the line of faith and puts her hope and trust in Jesus. She goes home to her husband and starts to tell him about Jesus. She starts to attend a uh, worship service regularly and joins a weekly women's Bible study. And she is so excited about Jesus and what she's learning, and she grows more and more passionate about her husband coming to know Jesus. And so she has a choice. She can tell him about Jesus every chance she, she gets. She might even become a little preachy. She starts to nag him about coming to church with her. And she reminds him every time that something goes wrong in his life, you know, you just need Jesus. Now you can imagine how that goes over. And he starts to really tire of her incessant witnessing. She can do that. Or she can choose to be quiet. She can love serve and respect her husband, praying that the Holy Spirit would use her godly actions to soften her husband's heart. She can allow the Holy Spirit to transform her from the inside out. And when we do that, any one of us, the fruit of the Spirit really begins to shine. And her life is increasingly marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. As Peter calls it, a gentle and quiet spirit at peace with God and with herself 
and who God made her to be. Her conduct and character have a far more powerful impact than her words ever would. This inner beauty that he refers to is real beauty, true beauty. It's not about being clothed with the latest fashions and styles, but about clothing yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, as Paul writes to the Colossians. The words of a writer put it well. Avoid a cantankerous grumbling that would prevent a non-Christian husband from seeing God's grace and goodness in your behavior. That is sound advice. And now to the husbands. To the husbands, Peter writes, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Peter is also commanding the husbands in the same way to submit. Right? It refers back to verse 13 of chapter 2. He's using this as an example now. He's speaking of a kind of submission, yet different. Husbands, he says, are to show consideration and respect. The New International Version that we typically use on a Sunday morning misses it a little bit on this when it says, be considerate. Because that, that can mean a lot of things. It's, it's almost like, well, just be nice. But the literal translation of the Greek word there is living with one's wife knowledgeably. Living with one's wife knowledgeably. The New Living Translation captures it well when it translates these Greek words, in the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. And so if the women in those first verses hear submission in its proper context this morning, the men, you need to hear this loud and clear, Now oh, I lost my place. I'll find it. It's here somewhere. The men need to hear honor and understanding. Because it is about us men really knowing our wives. Yes, it's about honoring our wives. Guys, you need some more words? Consider it works. It's there. That's a good word. Sensitive, serving, respect. After all, as Christians, they are co-heirs with us of God's gracious gift of life, eternal life. And far from putting women down here, in that culture, what Peter wrote, he was actually elevating the position of women in society. They were fellow heirs, equal partners before God. But men, when we disrespect our wives, we have far greater problems. God, beginning with God, who ignores us. Did you catch that little phrase at the end of verse 7? Because we are to love, honor, respect our wives... So that, or in other words, because, or the result of that will be that nothing will hinder our prayers. Husbands treating their wives with understanding and respect also has a purpose, so that their prayers will be effective. 
Now, that's pretty good incentive. I need to be right with my wife so that I am right with God. Listen, we men need to learn to love our wives respectfully and treat women appropriately. The problem today is that too many men intimidate, threaten, manipulate, control their wives in ways, in, in, in so many ways. <clears throat> and the worst part of that is that often the children see it, the kids see it, and perhaps assume that, that well, that's normal and appropriate behavior. And then they just perpetuate this unhealthy pattern in their own marriages. One of the sobering realities for me as a dad is my responsibility to teach my kids about Jesus first and foremost, but even in this context, to show Lucas how to treat women and to show Anna how women should be treated so that when she gets older, 25, and starts to date, <laughs> she will immediately know immediately know if she is being treated the way a woman should be treated. Dads, those of you who have children or will have children someday, the greatest gift and legacy you can give to your children is to really, really love your wives. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, calls men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Jesus' example guards against chauvinism and other abuses of the principle of submission. You see, men are not ready to be good husbands until they are with Christ and a part of his church and understand how Jesus loves the church. Because what did Jesus do for the church? He sacrificed himself for the church. That is the standard, guys. Is that challenging? Absolutely. And so we honor our wives. Let me give you some ways that we can honor our wives. And one of the little acronyms that I use in, in my life is SPIRE, S-P-I-R-E, and I use INSPIRE as a just a thing to kind of keep in front of me. And so if somebody asks me how I'm doing, I immediately think of S, spiritually, physically, intellectually, relationally, emotionally. And I can just kind of run through that, and I might be okay in one and not so good in the other and that kind of thing. And, and, and so I just thought, I'm going to use that outline this morning because I think it fits. So men, we honor our wives spiritually. <clears throat> this is where we initiate and lead prayer. We make the Bible central in our lives, marriages, and homes. We make church attendance as a family a family priority. We connect in a home group. We take responsibility for our church. We serve. We get involved. We find two other guys and start a triad. Guys, listen, if I were a betting man, I would bet, I, I, I would bet you <clears throat> that some of your wives are desperately praying for you to step it up spiritually in your relationship. And for many, many, many women, Jesus and his church are the most important thing. And they want to share that with you. And when you do that, you honor them. So you honor them spiritually. You honor them physically. 
Okay? Peter makes reference here to the weaker partner. Ladies, this isn't a put-down. This doesn't mean that you're weaker spiritually or morally. And while some women, uh, through training and physical fitness, are extremely strong generally, and it's just a genetic thing, it's the way we're designed, okay, they are physically weaker. So men, honor them. Be strong for your wife, not against her. Be protective and be physically present. Help shepherd the children. Be home at night to help put the kids to bed. And going back to the spiritually thing, pray with your kids. Teach them to pray. And when we do those kind of things, then we honor our wives spiritually and physically. We honor them intellectually. Listen to them. Listen to their ideas. Respect their thoughts and opinions. Read a book together and talk about it. Engage them in conversation. Hear them out, especially when making important decisions. Our wives have critical, important contribution to make to our families, and we do a disservice and damage to our children and our families when we don't. And so honor them intellectually. Honor them relationally. Be a one-woman man, absolutely, totally faithful to her. Make sure she's your number one priority and speak honorably to her, respectfully. Speak respectfully of her when she is present and when she is absent. And be responsible. Honor her. Honor her emotionally. Be emotionally present and intimate. Take her on dates. Initiate her. Initiate the dates. Be open and honest. Talk to her. And dare I say it? Share your feelings. I know that's hard. But seek to understand hers. Know her needs and know how you can serve her. Know her emotional needs and seek to meet them. Does this this sound a little overwhelming? There's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot to it. But you're saying, you know, what are our emotional needs? You know, Norb, you've lost me. First you tell me to share my feelings. I kind of tuned out at that point. And now you're telling me to meet her emotional needs. I don't even know what those are. I don't know what hers are. I'm going to recommend a good book for you. It's Willard Harley's His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And in it, he speaks to five emotional needs of the husband and five emotional needs of the wife. And that's generally what he's seen in his practice, I, I believe, as a counselor and as a psychologist. Okay? And so it's generally, they always fit, and this may or may not be true of you, but I'm going to give you five, and you can talk to your wife after about this. Say, so are any of those emotional needs your emotional needs? Affection. Affection without expecting anything in return. You know what I mean by that. Conversation. Talk to her. Honesty and openness. Financial support and family commitment. So let me try to bring this together. Spoke to the wives, spoke to the husbands, and now to husbands and wives together. Let me bring these two together and see if we can understand how these commands practically work themselves out in a life of mutual love and respect.
One, the wife submitting to her husband, and two, the husband knowing and honoring his wife. First, let me review what submission does not mean, and I believe it will help us understand what it means. Number one, it does not mean that the husband is, is an ultimate authority. There are higher authorities. God, for one, the government. And both husband and wife are in submission to the laws of the land and the commands of God. And frankly, if the husband is breaking the law, you have the right and even the responsibility to appeal to a higher authority. Call the police. You don't have to submit to an abusive husband. Secondly, a wife, and i got to always say this, submission does not mean that a wife does not have independent thoughts. They have thoughts. They have ideas. They have hopes and dreams for your family. Listen to them. Respect them. Thirdly, submission does not mean that a wife does not seek to influence her husband. To have a a gentle and quiet spirit that Peter talks about here does not mean that the wife is silent. The wife should be discerning, knowing when and where to speak and even how to speak. And just a, a, a word, nagging typically doesn't work. Okay? Men just get annoyed and it becomes a vicious circle because the more you nag, the more they go, okay, fine, forget it, I won't, you know, and it just drives them further apart. So speak, influence, yes, but again, respectfully, lovingly, and giving direct input is so critical. Fourthly, submission does not mean that a wife must obey her husband's command to sin. It also never means that a woman should deny the Lord or refuse to connect with other Christians. Your spiritual growth as a believer in Jesus Christ is vital and important. So sometimes you need to respectfully say, you know, honey, I know that there are things that are important to you. Playing hockey, hanging out with the guys, I support you. I'm just asking that you do the same for me. Now I got to go. The girls of my Bible study are waiting. Fifthly, Submission does not mean a wife is less intelligent or competent than her husband. A smart man will listen to the advice and input of his wife because she's probably smarter than him anyway. Listen, here's the issue. I think one of the problems when it comes to this matter of submission is that we're typically preoccupied whenever we hear it about what we can do and what our rights are. And I hope I've already laid the foundation for understanding marriage biblically, right? A wife ought to give her life to her husband to serve and cherish him, and the husband ought to lay down his life for his wife. What submission does, or sorry, what submission means can really only be understood by asking the question of what love means. When the wife is seeking to love her husband with her whole being and the husband is seeking to love his wife with his whole being, guess what? The issue of submission becomes a non-issue. But when the husband resorts to demanding his own way, he's not considering his wife's needs. Or if the Christian woman refuses to go along with her husband within reason, she may not be considering her husband's needs. But the focus of marriage is always on love and service. See, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband. But I don't ever believe for a second 
that the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, it's not an issue in our relationship. But when I am unworthy of it, it becomes an issue. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy. You see, that is the point. When a husband focuses on submission of his wife and the wife worries about it, the image of marriage is distorted. But when each focuses on the mutual responsibility to love and serve one another, the image of marriage becomes clear and beautiful. Now I'm going to wrap this up by just sharing a little bit about our relationship. And I do this with some trepidation. I did ask Tina for permission. Tina and I met in Chicago, Illinois. I was a youth pastor in Calgary. We were at a youth conference. She was there with uh, her youth group from Cleveland, Ohio. So there's a, a huge expanse between Cal- Calgary and Cleveland. And, uh, and I'm thinking... By the, the first day I met her, I was, I was stunned. And, uh, and, and it was a week-long conference, thankfully. And so we just started to hang out the whole time. And she kind of ignored her youth group and just kind of came and hung out with, with our youth group. <clears throat> and uh, the, the Monday we met. Tuesday night we had one of these, like, till 2 3 a.m. conversations just sharing our lives and our backgrounds and our stories. Friday night, the night before we were leaving, we are standing outside. And it was that, so now what? Where is this going? <clears throat> and uh, she has this classic line. She says, um, Calgary, so far away. And me being my sensitive self just said, yeah, and I'm committed there. <laughs> <clears throat> committed to my calling there. And I was just putting it out there because I, well, I'd only been at the, at, at the church for a couple years. I had no sense that God was calling me away. And if this was ever going to have to work, I wasn't going to be moving to Cleveland. Now, you know, I didn't know her that well. We certainly hadn't even talked about marriage at the point and all those kind of things. But let me just throw in a quick word to single women. I think it's important that you only marry a man that you can respectfully follow. Because if he is demanding and controlling, run like the wind and save yourself years of misery. So... We've been married almost 18 years, so it's worked out not too bad after that shaky start. Four years ago, Tina and I were in the midst of having served for 10 and a half years at a church in Ontario. And we believe that God was leading us on, and we started to process the next thing. All along, we had long conversations, prayed together. I knew this was going to be a huge thing. And the thing that we ended up doing was resigning from the church with no next thing, which basically means you got no job come January 1st. And it was scary. Soon after making that commitment, we were contacted by a ministry in the U.S. that we worked with, and we agreed to a six-month contract. Just as that was about to start was the first time Pastor Ken called and talked about how they were looking for an associate pastor and kind of laid it out. And I said, you know, Ken, sounds like something I would have been really interested, but I just can't right now because I signed a six-month contract. If this doesn't work out because it is just a, a trial, maybe we can talk then. So, But if you keep looking and you find somebody in the meantime, then, you know, obviously just go ahead. That's, that's what it's meant to be. 
I also, with that ministry that I was working to, as the sixth month came to the end, I realized that it wasn't the next thing. But here's the, here's the piece that you need to understand that. What made it so attractive was that we probably would have relocated to Cleveland, Ohio, and be near Tina's family. And that was a huge thing for her, and I understood that. And I actually wanted that. I thought, you know, this will be a good thing. We then interviewed and spoke with several churches in the Cleveland area. Nothing came together. It was a long, uh, Thanksgiving long weekend of 2008. We were driving back from Cleveland, having had some interviews, wondering where it was going, and just having the sense that it wasn't going very well. And we were both kind of bummed about it. And then I just said, as we're driving, I said, I wonder if Twilliger Community Church ever found anybody. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but Tina just looks at me and she goes, no way. She knew it was in Edmonton. And honestly, it was such a strong reaction that it was like 45 minutes of dead silence. I didn't know how to respond. It was just awkward. And, uh, and it, it was really tough. Five days later, without me initiating the call, because I thought there's no way I could approach Pastor Ken again, Pastor Ken called. And I think that very next call I said to Ken, I said, Ken, if this is what God wants, then he's got to do a major work in Tina's heart. And uh, he knew that. Tina comes home, and I, I did have this stupid little grin on my face when I said, guess who called? <clears throat> uh, Ken called, and she knew. We didn't talk for a week about it. it. Just It didn't come up. I knew we could never broach the subject. And I just, I just prayed. And I prayed that if this is where God was calling us, that I knew Tina's heart was after God's heart and that only God could change her heart on that. And, um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't even issue, an issue about submitting to me or, or my wants. It was about submitting to God's call on our lives. But I just tell you that little story because I want to add this. Can you imagine how easily I could have derailed the process if I pushed or forced the issue? If I pulled that submission card, I could have done irreparable harm to our marriage. We may never have ended up here. And if we did, she probably would have felt then constantly like she was forced or obligated to move here. Instead, given time and patience, we were able to come to a place of mutual understanding and submission to God's call. One more example, and I have to share this because I got Tina's permission to share what I just shared on the condition that I share this current issue that is near and dear to her heart. We're out of time. (laughs) Tina, I'm sorry, but I need to submit to Pastor Ken. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, here's the issue. And it's kind of a dumb one, and you're going to just think, man, you guys have issues. But we have lots of issues. This is the only one I can share with you. When we moved here, then we were praying for two things. Peace, that this is where God was calling us, first and foremost, and space. And so we bought a house backing onto a large park. And there's a path just down the small hill from the fence at the back of the yard 
by the developer's caveat, we can only have black chain-link fencing on, on all three sides, the back and the sides between, uh, between the neighbors. And uh, <clears throat> our backyard and our deck, basically, then, you can imagine, is just wide open, right, to the neighbors on both sides and the people walking on the paths behind us. Tina would like to have a little more privacy. I think... If we wanted privacy, we shouldn't have bought a house on a park. So Tina wants to plant some trees. So this in our home is kind of known as the tree issue, and every once in a while it kind of creeps up, and now I'm throwing it out there, and you can all pray for us and hope that we work it out. But I don't want the trees. I have a long list of logical, rational reasons. I don't want to dig any more holes. I don't want to haul any more dirt. I don't want to spend any more money on the yard. Our yard is small enough as it is. It's easy to cut the grass. You don't have anything to work around. I I just don't want any more work. I don't want the trees. And so far, Tina has patiently waited for me on this. She could force the issue and just go ahead and do it. But she also knows that I wouldn't be able to sit and watch her do it. She's probably really praying and just being patient until I come around. And she wanted me to share this publicly with the hope of soliciting your support. I know that. But as silly as this issue is, it really illustrates the tension that sometimes exists in our marriage and I suspect in many in yours. If I'm the head, and I use that very carefully, of our family, She wants me to say yes to the trees. But if I'm the head, she really is the heartbeat. You see, my problem is is that I always see the logical reasons why we shouldn't plant the trees. But she feels the need for privacy of not having the neighbors check out what we're having for dinner. And I think that's a good way to look at marriage the head and the heartbeat coming together under the authority of God for his sake and for his glory.